All right, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 19, and we will be wrestling with the first half of Judges 19 together this morning. If you're visiting, or if you just need the reminder, page five of your worship guide, you'll see this, and it's got the sermon passage, 19 verses 1 through 21, the, the title, an outline, and some reflection questions, and some space to take notes. So use that if that helps you stay fully attentive to this passage and fully engaged in what God is revealing to us this morning. Um, in an effort to be fully attentive and engaged, I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read the first 21 verses of Judges 19 for us. And I'll remind you, uh, this is God's living and active word. So it's no ordinary, it's no ordinary thing that's going on here. Uh, we're we're in engaging in and participating in something that is actually miraculous. God is speaking to us through, through the Bible, through his word. So with that in mind, put your full attention on verse 1 of Judges 19. God says, In those days I was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. And then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, the father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come, now let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said, and he said to his young man, Come, and let us draw near to one of these places, and spend the night at Gibeah, or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at, at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. 
And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, before we unfold and unpack this portion of your word, uh, we, we need to ask you to give us receptivity. We need to ask you for this very basic, this basic need to, to feel needy, to feel hungry for what you're showing us. Uh, we need you to uh, give us eyes that see what, what you're showing us, ears that hear what you're really saying to us. We need you to, to soften our hearts and make us very, very uh, in tune with, with who you are and what you want us to learn so that we might be impacted and shaped more and more into the image uh, of Jesus, that we might be more and more delighted to walk in the way of Jesus. Um, and we ask that you would do that good work in us now, author and perfect Christ-likeness in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to state the obvious, y'all are here this morning to essentially learn more about Jesus. That's, that's why you go to church. The best reason, the most simple best reason to, to participate in uh, a Christian worship gathering is to, to see Jesus and to savor Jesus, to know him more. Um, it's like going to a national park rather than watching the Discovery Channel or the Nature Channel or National Geographic, to, to actually go and be in the midst of, of the mountains and the canyons and near the rivers and to see the, the wildlife. You're not just seeing it on a screen, but you're putting yourself in in the context where you can really smell it and you can sense it and you can you could be near it and have a, a sensory experience. Or it's like taking a cooking class rather than just going to a restaurant. You, you really want to get your hands dirty. You want to know, okay, how, how does it work? What's the process? Uh, how can I participate? And how, how can I get more mileage out of this, this food experience? Not just show up as sort of a, a passive eater, but, but really learn how to, how to cook. That's why you're here. Uh, and that's true not just here on Sunday mornings. Uh, the church uh, isn't just this time of the week where we gather on Sundays. The church, according to the book of Acts, is something that happens all, it happens all throughout the week. It's believers just being together in each other's homes, uh, breaking bread, fellowship, uh, wrestling with the word of God one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, uh, praying with and for each other. That's, that's the church. And it's all about knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about Jesus, gathering some theological data and information and making sure that we all sort of agree on what's the right doctrine. It, it's about knowing Jesus. Uh, and this has been the case for thousands and thousands of years. Um, uh, back in the book of Genesis, when the, the character Jacob uh, gets his new name, he goes from Jacob to Israel. Uh, Israel, that name means wrestles with God. So that's best case scenario what we're doing here today. We want to 
We want to wrestle with who God is. And we want to know our Savior and our King and our Shepherd Jesus. And if that's the case, the first thing you need to know about Jesus is that he's a big Bible guy. He loves the Bible. He says, I, I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that comes from the, the it is written. And he's always prefacing his teaching and his, his stories and statements with this, 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 this Greek word, it is written. He's saying it, it is written, and then he'll quote scripture. It's all about the word of God. So I say all that to orient us because we're studying these ancient stories, these stories that maybe at first glance feel like, okay, they're outdated, they're irrelevant. Uh, why would anybody individually or, or gather in large groups to study these old stories? That, that maybe at best feel ir irrelevant or, or at worst feel sort of like gross or overly grotesque or uh, confusing. You know, what's the, what's the reason for gathering to read these stories and contemplating them? Well, we do that because that's what our leader tells us to do. That's what he did. He leads us in the direction of wrestling with these ancient stories. He's always hearkening to these Old Testament prophecies and poems and, and narratives. And so, so we follow Jesus into that terrain and we wrestle with these things. Um, and Jesus doesn't simply point us in the direction of these old stories, but he gives us specific answers for how we navigate these stories. So, so he, he tells us when he cites these, these Old Testament stories that we should be ultimately seeing him relishing him as our redeemer, redeemer, the savior of sinners. And, and we should be seeing things about ourselves. And, and frankly, a big dimension of what we should be seeing about ourselves is not particularly flattering. There, there's this wretchedness that we are being shown about, about ourselves. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus is talking to some people and he points out to this crowd of people that he's talking to. He says, y'all know how to give good gifts. He says, you know, when your kids or your nieces or your nephews or some neighborhood kid comes asking for bread, you don't give them a rock. You don't say, here, suck on this. You don't, you don't do that. You, if they want bread, yeah, you can have some bread. I, I can give you bread. It's not hard. Or if, if your kids ask for a fish, you don't give them a snake. You, you, know, you know how to give good gifts. And, and then he says, so if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does God, your heavenly Father, give good gifts to those, who, to those who ask? See, he just drops it in so casually, without missing a beat. He's talking about how, and then he says, so if you are evil, you who are evil know how to do that. He just drops that in. So one of the takeaways from that is that even in the most ordinary kinds of moments or, or occasions, God says, not to be mean, but to point out the truth, he says, you have this, you have this evil in you. you. You have this wretchedness in you. You know, sin crouches at the door of your life, and it, it wants to dominate you. It wants to enslave you, and there's something in you that resonates with that. There's something in you that wants to give in to that. And, and it can just be in the most ordinary, regular, routine, mundane kind of ways. It's just ordinary evil. So, so ordinary that you may not recognize it as evil or wretched, but it's there. And Jesus, again, he doesn't say this to be mean or to guilt you or to make you wallow in shame, but like a, a good surgeon, he needs to point out that there's this stuff in you that we might need to surgically operate on. We might, we might need to deal with that. 
Because if you've got some kind of cancer in you, a good oncologist will diagnose it and say we need to deal with it. So this morning, the first half of this chapter, Judges 19, God wants us to wrestle with this this reality of ordinary evil. And there are three facets to ordinary evil that we see in this passage. Number one, it's selfishness or selfish ambition. Uh, The other facet is illusion of safety, not actual safety, but the illusion of safety. And the third facet is flimsy solutions, not not God-approved solutions, but some version of sufficiency, some some solution that is man-made, something that we came up with. So that's what we're going to unpack together this morning. We're going to start with selfish ambition, and we see it right away, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. So just that statement alone, if you've ever read through the book of Judges, or if you've been coming to ECPC for 2023, we've been going through this book of Judges, that is a very familiar statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And the original audience would immediately know what is being said when the author writes, there is no king in Israel. It's like saying 9-11 in America. Nobody nobody thinks you're just citing a date. We're all conditioned, uh, and and we all naturally know that you're referencing an event. And that's, that's the same here. No king in Israel. It's, it's code, or there's a subtext here. And it means everybody just does whatever they want. There's, there's no king in the days, in whatever feels good to them. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so the first example of that is what I'll call straightforward indulgence, or straightforward selfish ambition. There's this Levite, and he, we are told, takes a concubine to himself. So this most likely means, you know, he's got, he's got another wife, maybe multiple other wives, maybe other concubines, and he's got this additional mistress. He's got this other lady. And he, he, he takes her as his concubine for, for what reason? Well, I hesitate to even use the expression at best, but at best it's for maybe status reasons. Like he's trying to care for all these, these women who may not get the, you know, medical care dealt with or, or have food that's, that's adequate or clothing uh, or all those resources in life that you might need. So maybe he's like, you know, I'm the kind of guy who has the money to bring, you know, additional ladies into his house. You know, you see that. You see that in, in the kings of Israel. They, they're, they're pretty much all polygamists and they have multiple wives and it's a status thing. They can care. They have the resources. They're the king. They can care for all these ladies. Uh, most likely, she exists for his personal pleasure. She's a, she's a sex object. That's why he, he takes her. It, it, she's just, she exists for his personal pleasure. He doesn't love her. He doesn't serve her. He doesn't sacrifice for her. And we're going to see that in a very explicit and, and uncomfortable and graphic way as this chapter goes on. And it's just, this guy's following his selfish appetites. The New Testament, Philippians chapter 2 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. If you follow God, you walk in the way of Jesus, don't do anything from selfish ambition or personal conceitedness, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's God's way. That's what God wants for his people, but we see none of that here in Leviticus 19. That's completely absent in this story and in this character, this Levite man. 
And, and let's just pause here and recognize we see this all over in our lives and, and in the world. So every time you fly and you're about to board the airplane, you see this on display. You see selfish ambition. Because even those jokers in group nine, they line up. Like they, they do the, like the pre-call, like the VIP first class passengers are the only people to permit, are permitted to board the plane. And group nine, and I know this because I'm a group niner, I stand up and I jockey for position because I am a selfish, selfish, wretched man. And I don't know why I want to get on the plane so quickly. It's like, I don't even have luggage that needs to go in the overhead bin. I just want to get on that plane because you got to be first. It's selfish. Uh, every time, maybe not every time, but this can be the case. When you're at a dinner party and people are sharing stories and this can be pleasant and this can be healthy and good. But you know, there's this phenomenon where people are trying to one-up each other, where, where you tell a story, and uh, if you, it's a quick aside, your homework today is to go YouTube Brian Regan dinner party, because he, he can lay it out for you in a much more hilarious and, and honestly insightful way than I can, and I'm just going to borrow from his material. He says, you know, you're at the dinner party, and it's like the, the courtesy really is nothing more than just wait till the other person's lips stop moving, and then you, 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 yeah, me, me. Because I'm going to one-up your story. So he gives this example of uh, trying to tell a story at a dinner party where he had his wisdom teeth out. And he, the way he puts it is he says, yeah, you know, I recently had my wisdom teeth out. I had two wisdom teeth. And then somebody goes, I had four. I had four removed. And they were all impacted. And they were coming in sideways. And, and I had no anesthesia. And I was eating corn on the cob later that afternoon. <laughs> right? We just, there's this, we got to win. We've got to one-up each other. Because we're selfish. We're selfish. And this, this can be as basic as, you know, I have a bowl of cereal and I just put it in the sink and I just let the cereal dry to the side of the bowl. Have you ever seen it? It's like, it's like someone glued it in there. I just, I don't have time to rinse it out and put it in the dishwasher. That can just be selfish. It's just ordinary selfishness. Or conversely, it could be you grumbling about one of your roommates for leaving a bowl in the sink without rinsing it out. And acting like, oh, you guys are making my life hard. And just grumbling, not having any joy. It's all selfishness. It's just ordinary, everyday selfishness. And uh, that's what this guy in his cultural moment is displaying for us. He's just, he's just a very selfish, self-absorbed man. Uh, the next version of selfishness we see is, is a little harder. But it's the self-indulgence of being the victim. This is, this is an area of selfishness. Uh, this concubine in verse 2. She's unfaithful to this man. Uh, she's tired of, of playing second fiddle. She's tired of being devalued. And so she's going to seize some control. She's going to go out into the world and make something happen on her terms. Because she's tired of getting kicked around. She is, she is Nate Shelley from Ted Lasso in some ways. Okay. She, now listen, to be clear, this, this woman really is the victim. And as this story goes on, it, it, it's going to get progressively horrifying. And, and she really is legitimately a victim. I'm not detracting from that. But she's, she's also an agent of wretchedness. You, you realize this? You, you can be the victim. In fact, all of you need to wrestle with the fact that in some ways you have been the victim. And maybe you're, you're weirdly too proud to even admit that. You're so narcissistic and arrogant that you think, I, I could never be so, so frail or feeble to ever be the victim. And that's not true. All of you are, are, are scared little kids on some level, and you're, you're, you are the victim. But more primarily, you're the agent. You, you're a sinner. 
It's not the evil of your abusers. It's, it's your evil that the, the Bible says you have to wrestle with. Most of all, most primarily. If you guys uh, have ever read the book Unbroken, the story of Louis Zamperini, I, I, I don't think anybody who's read that book or watched that film could argue that Louis wasn't the victim. Like what he endured in the, the POW camp in Japan, clearly he had been through all kinds of trauma and suffering, and we're not denying that. But Louis, in his testimony, he would be the first to tell you that he was a sinner. And so when he was taken to this Billy Graham conference with, by his wife, you know, after he got back from the war and he was feeling sorry for himself and he was coping, for all of, uh, coping with all his trauma by turning to alcohol and all these other unhealthy outlets and he felt entitled to indulge in whatever he wanted to because he had been the victim. And then this preacher man named Billy got up and said, no, you, and it was like he was speaking directly to Louis, you are the sinner. Most importantly, you need to reckon with the fact that you are a sinner in the sight of of a holy God, and only the blood of Jesus can bail you out. Only the blood of Jesus can atone for you. And that at first made Louis very angry, and he thought, how dare you? How dare you say that I am an evil, sinful person, and, and not someone just to feel, to be pitied and, and to feel sorry for? And then the Holy Spirit got a hold of Louis, and he realized it, it's true. And the only way I can actually have freedom and life to the fullest is not by indulging in this victim identity, but by indulging in this, this need for Jesus. And to make that my boast, to say, okay, I, I am weak, I am feeble, and I am wretched, and I need a Savior. So that's another area of, of selfishness that we see on display here. It's harder to see, but I think it's there. And then finally, I think we see this selfish ambition displayed in the host, uh, the, the concubine's father. The girl's father, in verse 3, she joyfully greets the son-in-law when he shows up, and he, he insists that he stay for three days minimum, and he lavishes hospitality on him. And, uh, and then he makes him stay an extra day. And then he tries to get him to stay longer, and he just keeps insisting that you, you stay and you you let your heart be merry and you, and you enjoy the hospitality. Now, for the record, this, this guy in verse 3 and following, the author doesn't explicitly tell us that this guy is, is being selfish. He, he doesn't say it that way. But we're all familiar with this phenomenon of the, of the self-absorbed host. We're all familiar with this. And, and in its context, I mean, we just read a story about a Levite who was taken in by a guy named Micah, and, and Micah's agenda, maybe at first looks righteous or pious, he's trying to hire a guy to be his household priest, but God is saying this is a selfish thing. This is a self-indulgent thing. It's not, it's not a good thing. It's a selfish ambition thing. And we all know that this can be the case. We all know that you, know, you can position yourself as, as the, the charitable one, the host, the hospitality guru, and it's really all about you. You want the status of not really being a loving, generous person, but you want people to think that about you. And so you will go to some trouble to, to create this reputation and this status for yourself. You will be viewed as the excellent, wonderful counselor. You're going to be the insightful question asker. You're going to be the people, you're going to be the person people turn to in their hour of need. I know someone here in Charlotte, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to name names, a lot of you wouldn't know who this person was anyways, but it's a real person, and this person prides themselves 
Um, they're, not, they're not here, by the way. Okay, out somewhere at large. And I mean that. Um, and they pride themselves on being a helper. They, they think, I, I come in and I help uh, people in marriages, and, and I, I'm really there to serve them and to help them. And uh, I've had, I don't want to say the opportunity, uh, I've had the experience of working in the vicinity of this person. And at first, it all sounded great. You're there to help. But then I realized, you know, a couple months into this process, we were trying to help this married couple. And uh, this individual, they just sowed seeds of fear and paranoia. And, and the closer I got to this, this marriage situation, the more I thought, you know, we can work on this. There, there's forgiveness. There's repentance. There's, there's, there's valuable stuff here, constructive stuff here that we can work with to repair this marriage. And all the while, this, this individual just kept just sowing these seeds of fear and paranoia all under the banner of helping one of the members of the marriage. And it ruined the marriage. They're divorced now. It just kids, kids are dealing with the divorce of the parents. It's, it, it's a wreck. And it's so insidious. Because it was all done under this, this banner of, I'm just trying to, I'm helping. And it wasn't from the Spirit. It wasn't in line with the way of Jesus. And I think the reason... We go for that a lot of the time. When we're enticed by that, it's because it creates the illusion of safety. It, 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 it caters to this, this chronic uh, craving in us for, for this illusion to, to feel safe, feel protected. And that's something we see in the, not actual safety, but, but the apparition, the illusion. Verse 10, uh, the Levite man does eventually leave. His father-in-law tries to get him to stay. He says, no, we're leaving we're absolutely leaving, and so they leave, and they pass near this place, Jebus. It's what eventually becomes to be known as Jerusalem. But at this moment in history, it's not Israelite territory, and that's key in this passage. So the, the Levite's servant suggests, hey, the sun is starting to set. We need to find a place to lodge. How about we, we turn in here to Jebus, Jerusalem, and we'll find lodging there? And immediately, the Levite says, no. No, we can't do that. We cannot lodge amongst these foreigners, non-Israelites. And his rationale is, that wouldn't be safe. That, that wouldn't be safe. I mean, who knows what they would do to us in there. They're not our people. It wouldn't be safe. And so the flip side of this coin is, what's, what's he saying? What's the Levite gunning for? What's he ambitious to find? Well, not actual safety. We're going we're gonna to see later in this chapter, he doesn't actually achieve the safety goal that he aspires to, but, but he's under the illusion that we will be safe in Israelite territory with the Benjaminites in Gibeah. And we do this all the time. We confuse what we're familiar with with safety. We confuse and conflate what is comfortable with this is safe or this is good. And it's not because it's actually safe or good or healthy. It's because it's what we know. It's what's familiar to us. And that's dangerous because... What we know is predicated on we, and we is wretched. We, we don't see the world right. And so we're trusting in ourselves. We're leaning on our own understanding, and, and we're believing that something is healthy or good or safe when it, in all actuality, is not. And all we have to do is turn to God's word and ask God, what is actually healthy for us? What is actually safe according to your definition of safety? So what's an example of that in our day? We associate safety 
with things like affluent neighborhoods, good schools, conservative religious environments. Okay? Now let's put that to the test. Let's go to the Bible. This isn't Tyler's opinion. This is us asking Jesus. Jesus, how would you respond to us idolizing affluent communities and good schools and conservative religious communities? Well, it doesn't take long if you read through the Gospels. Uh, Jesus, in many ways, challenges our assumption that those venues are categorically safe. So, affluency. Affluency. Jesus talks to people who have wealth. They're affluent, and he, he warns them. He says, now, you, you got wealth. Okay, I'm just going to warn you. It is easier, actually, for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, imagine Jesus said that about something else. Imagine if Jesus had said, now, if, if you live in an area of town where there are gunshots and helicopters flying over, and Title I schools, I mean, it's going to be hard for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. We'd all book it out of those neighborhoods. We would take that as absolute justification to, to leave those environments that we already don't feel safe in. And we'd say, see, Jesus said it's not safe. So we'd get out of there lickety-split. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, I, I just want to warn you because I love you. If you, if you put affluency on a pedestal and you start to create this illusion that it is the, the premier paradigm of safety, I didn't actually say that. I actually said, it's dangerous to play the affluency game. Affluenza, it's, it's a real thing. And, and you, at, at a minimum, need to, to be aware of that and, and to at least take that, to, take that into consideration and take it to heart. Um, what about conservative religious communities? Uh, well, Jesus interacted with a lot of religious communities who were very, very conservative, namely the Pharisees. That was the religious community of Jesus' day. These were the theological experts. This, these, these are the very, very conservative guys. Um, and Jesus uh, very clearly, multiple times, will say, hey, beware of the Pharisees. And, and it's not that Jesus totally disassociates. You know, when Pharisees invite Jesus over for dinner, he doesn't say, no, I can't. He still goes. He'll go to Simon the Pharisee's house. So, so, but what he's saying is, beware. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He says to the Pharisees, in public, in front of other people, he says, you guys travel across sea and land to make a single convert, and when they become a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell as y'all. No, no one, when Jesus first said that, predicted that he was going to say that to those guys. Everybody thought if the Messiah is coming, he's going to commend and celebrate the, the, the conservative religious community. And Jesus didn't. He said, no, there's, there's some dangers here that y'all aren't aware of. And look, Jesus is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. He, he says, you've got to navigate this stuff. But at, at a minimum, it starts with putting... The, the warnings, the beware statements in the places where Jesus puts the warning and beware statements. And apparitions of safety based on our own understanding rather than the, the revelation of what we get in the Gospels. So we see here in this story, Le Leviticus 19, they seek out a safer location to lodge and they arrive in Gibeah, which is Israelite territory. And, and the Levite thinks, okay, we're in a safe place. But the reader, based on how the author sets this up, once this, this guy comes in from the field, this sojourner from Ephraim, we see that the mood is menacing. 
The mood, the mood is not a, a safe mood. The environment doesn't feel safe. Something's, something's off, we see. Because in verse 16, this old man from Ephraim, he comes into the city square, and he sees the Levite and his servant and their donkeys and the concubine, and, and no one has taken them in. They haven't found a place to lodge. And this old guy from Ephraim seems to know something that the Levite and his party don't know. And so the old man hurries them to his house. And in many ways, you know, he's trying to save them from something, some, some menacing thing that we don't know yet until we read later in this chapter, but the old man knows. So he's trying to save them. And I don't want to detract from the old man's solution. There is an effort to provide a solution to a problem, but we're going to see it's, it's not going to suffice. And this is, again, part of ordinary evil. Uh, we, 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 we buy into things that feel like this will solve it. We have a strategy to fix whatever the problem. You know, it's predicated on, on some version of our own sufficiency. And, and we, we think this will, will solve the problem, but it's, it's flimsy. It's like a few months ago, I was uh, wrangling an air mattress. And that is the exact right term for dealing with air mattresses. Wrangling. Sounds like you're roping cattle. You're riding a horse, but... That's how it feels. And uh, I was trying to like get this air mattress like wedged into a tight space. Long story short, I puncture the air mattress. There's this little handle on one of the sides and I puncture it. And the hole, I don't know, like big. It's a big hole. Like I go to the kit that comes with the air mattress to patch the hole and it's like maybe half the size of the hole I put in this thing. And I think, okay, all right, well, I need this air mattress to, to hold air because we're going to bed and someone's going to sleep on this thing. So I go get my trusty duct tape. That'll fix it. And I, I mean, I use like the whole roll. I just, I'm like, when in doubt, apply more duct tape, right? And I wrap it around in all kinds of ways. I crisscross, I, no air is getting out of this thing. And uh, after all of that exertion, all of that effort, putting duct tape on this thing, still leaked, right? Halfway through the night, whoever slept on that one was sleeping on the ground. It's a flimsy solution. And God says that that's, that's what y'all's solutions are like. You know, you lean on your own understanding. You, you, you follow a way of self-sufficiency. It's, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. You doing what's right in your eyes, it's not going to work. Uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells this parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And so this man thought to himself, what am I going to do with this bumper crop? I got, I got to have a place to put my crops. And so he said, I know. He has a solution. I know. I will tear down my old barns. I'll build bigger Barns, new barns, and I'll store my grain in those new barns. And then, here's the crux of the story. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. Everything is, is fine. Everything's good. Let Just relax, be at rest, be at peace, soul, because I figured it out. I figured out how to achieve stability and security. And God's response very definitively to this man is, fool! You think you found a solution, and it's not a solution. It's flimsy at best. This night, your soul is required of, of you. Your, your soul, your, your, your soul solution cannot be whatever version of storing up crops, whatever avenue that you take for finding security and confidence and peace of mind. If that's, if that's from yourself, if that's born out of your 
Understanding your sense of self-sufficiency, it's not going to work. And again, as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't hit us with this truth to be mean, but he says, I love you enough to tell you that if it's a, if it's a flimsy solution, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you about that. And y'all, we go through life feeling threatened in all kinds of ways. Uh, we, we feel this need to create solutions all the time. All the time. And it probably shows up most intensely in just this very normal, ordinary sense of, what are people thinking of me? What are people really saying about me when I'm not around? How am I being viewed? And, and we create some kind of self-sufficiency strategy for protecting ourselves in, in all of these relationships that, frankly, we're really intimidated by and scared of. It's very ordinary, this, this evil tendency in us. We have all kinds of self-protection protocols, right? Only let people see uh, certain things about me because otherwise, you know, they may use what they know about me in ways that I don't like. Uh, so just bottle it up. You know, don't ever feel needy. Don't ever show weakness. Just hide. Blame shift where you can. Deflect. You know, just safer that way. That's the solution. And God says, look, whatever your version of self-protection if, if, you're, if you're leaning on your own understanding, if you're doing what's right in your own eyes, it's not going to work. That's the whole point of the story of Judges. It, God says, I'm going to show you even some really gritty, horrific stuff to wake you up and show you and prove to you that this is true. You cannot live in accordance with what just feels natural and, and easy to you, right? Whatever's right in your own eyes, it's not going to work. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. God says, don't lean on your own understanding. Because I love you, you need to know that the only way you can have joy, confidence, true security, peace, life to the fullest is in me, in Christ alone. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a pretty extreme thing to say. Certainly, Jesus, I could do something, like a little bitty thing. Jesus says, nothing, nothing worth doing. Can you achieve or accomplish apart from me? And I just cited one, Psalm 127, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. You know, it's interesting. That psalm goes on to say, the second half of the psalm says, children are a heritage from the Lord. You, you want to... You want to walk in the way of God's strategy for confidence and, and perfecting power? He says, okay, you need to put your attention on children and understand that they are, are sort of a sacrament or a, a display, a paradigm, a living, breathing example of, of how God has designed your, your confidence and your felt security to, to actually work. And let's really kind of Think about this. What is maybe the thing in life that causes us to feel the least in control? Our children. <laughs> right? These people that you care more about, just naturally, you care so much about them, you love them, and you cannot make decisions for them. You, they, it drives you crazy that you cannot feel in control in this area of life. And we're just desperately looking for like a formula or a parenting strategy that just gives me some semblance of we're on the right track, we're in control, and at every turn. It's like that's not available. And it's, it's fascinating to me that, that when God confronts us with unless I build the house, 
you labor in vain, he makes you think about this paradigm of children. The thing we most naturally fret and feel concerned for, our children. And this is God's invitation to steward this, this mystery, this paradox of God's economy, how, how God accomplishes true power and value. It's not in the way we would have thought of or, or prescribed for ourselves, but this is how God lays it out. The mystery of God's real solution is found on this path of contemplating what, what God is showing us through through children. Overcoming evil, Jesus says, actually requires that you become not more in control, but that you become like children, right? How do, how do you walk in the way of this mighty king who wants to perfect his power in you? Jesus says, well, you got to become like, like this demographic in society that, that's small, that's feeble, that's weak. That's how this is going to work. The meek, believe it or not, the childlike will inherit the earth. This is a big question that all the nations on the planet wrestle with, and they war for this reason. Who's going to inherit the earth? And Jesus, really succinctly in the Gospel of Matthew, says the meek. The meek will inherit the earth. Believe it or not, that's the truth. And God says the solution, the absolute, eternal, irrevocable solution, the thing that will actually save us and ensure our security is, is what? It's a child. Listen to this. This is a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. To the people who walk in darkness. If you've been paying it even just a little bit of attention to the book of Judges, we've been walking in darkness. And it's about to go into some deep darkness. And Isaiah said, to a people who walk in darkness, who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Big problems. What's the solution? What's the promise of God? To them... Isaiah 9 says, a child is born. And this child, the prophet Isaiah goes on to say later in his book, Isaiah 53, will be the child who didn't, didn't put himself first. He considered the interests of others. He, he came not to be served, not to win, not to put himself first ahead of everybody, but to lay down his life. To give his life as a ransom for wretched people who desperately, desperately need God to save them. This child would grow up to be the suffering servant, the king who lays down his life for his enemies. Honestly, if, if I could go back in time and have a conversation with the characters in this chapter, Leviticus 19, I'd take them to that passage in Isaiah 9, and I'd say, hey, I'm not, I'm not here to, to say I have all the answers. I want to invite you into the mystery of what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. And, and because I have access to it, I could take back with me the, the story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus. And I'd say, believe it or not, in the fullness of time, God will take on flesh and he will have a conversation with a guy who is very self-sufficient, highly credentialed, highly educated. Nicodemus was the guy everybody turned to for the solution. He was Mr. Answer Man. He, he knew how to get the job done even when no one else knew how to do it. And what does Jesus say? He says, number one, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to become like a child, which is to say you have to not lean on your own understanding. You have to not live in light of your sense of uh, your own sufficiency. You have to trust me. And then he says, and with that in mind, you have to look to me. You have to look to my sacrifice. You have to look to the paradox of how God will come and become sin. He will, be, he will become the curse. Because that's what y'all's wretchedness requires. 
Because he loves you that much. Because he wants to give you his, his free atonement, his blood, to pay for your sin. And he wants to ransom you as his treasured possession. So you have to be all about what Jesus has come to accomplish from this place of recognizing your, your neediness, your childlike neediness. Let's pray now and ask God to do that in us. We pray, Jesus, that you would, uh, by the power of the Spirit, preach the gospel to our souls so that we don't say to our souls, be satisfied in some man-made construct, some version of our own strategies to feel protected or sufficient. But we would feel the overwhelming mystery of confidence in Christ. Please cultivate that in us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.